This is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay, good morning, everyone. We have a few copies of the text for those who don't have a book. But once again, uh, if, you're, if you're coming as a regular to the shear, please uh, order the book. on It's available on Amazon if anyone needs an extra copy. Um, and then we have a handout for today. The handout is up in the Facebook group Shi'ur in Moren Avuchim on Facebook. If anyone uh, would like to join that group, you're welcome to. We are on chapter 9 today. Last week, before we actually get into the text, last week we spoke about a related topic, which is God's makom. Sometimes scripture ascribes God to being in a place. Baruch kavod Hashem mimekomo. Blessed is the glory of God from his place. And of course, these types of anthropomorphisms, the Rambam feels that he needs to explain because there is no uh, physical attribution possible to Hashem. So he explained that place is an intellectual concept, is a metaphysical concept, of that God is in a, a certain plane of intellectual uh, apprehension, um, and, and therefore he distanced the possibility of God being confined to a three-dimensional space. Related to that is <clears throat> based on the Gemara that we saw last week, the Gemara in Avodah Zarah, we had quoted from this Gemara last week, that describes God having a daily schedule when he goes to work every day. And the Gemara had said that there are 12 hours in God's work day. The first three hours of the day, God is learning Torah. The second three hours of the day, God is in judgment of the world. This is in source number one in your source. I'm just translating it. And during those second three hours of the day, when God is judging the world, once God sees that based on stern, the stern attribute of justice, the world does not deserve to endure, the world rather deserves to be destroyed, so the Gemara says, God gets up from his seat or throne of, of justice, and he switches over to sit on the throne of mercy. Okay? God here is described in, in highly anthropomorphic terms as sitting in a throne, and not only having one throne, but having two thrones. A throne of ju- a justice, stern justice, and a throne of mercy. And of course, this language is, uh, has to be explained metaphorically, allegorically for the Rambam, but more than that, the Rambam's first project is going to try and explain what the word kisei means, not from Torah Sheba'al Peh, not from our oral tradition, but when you find the word kisei in Tanakh itself. And that's what he's going to be dealing with over here. At the end, he's going to tell us that the word kisei actually has two different meanings whenever we encounter it 
it could have one of two different meanings in Tanakh. So let's take a look and see what he says. Throne, kisei. Originally, the meaning given to this word in the Hebrew language was that it was the term designating a throne. And of course, he's just saying that when Hashem first invented this word in the Hebrew language, it means a, a seat that a person sits on. Now, the reason why kisei is translated both as a chair and a throne is because in the modern world, you and I are sitting on chairs. In the ancient world, a chair was a luxury. And generally speaking, only VIPs, very important people, would be sitting on chairs. And that's why they were called thrones. What we call a throne today is a really fancy chair that only dignitaries sit on. But in the ancient world, the only kinds of chairs that existed were very fancy or chairs reserved for dignitaries. I don't know how fancy they were, but they were chairs that were reserved for dignitaries. So as, however, only people of high rank and great authority, such as kings, used to sit on a throne, on a kisei, and the kisei became an existent thing indicative of the grandeur, the high rank, and the great dignity of him who was thought worthy of it. So when the word itself now has a new connotation, because as it is used within culture, within civilization, it is used to designate importance of the person sitting on the throne. So if I say, oh, Joe is sitting on the chair, I'm saying more about Joe than I am about anything else about his sitting position or the fact that there's a chair in the room. What I'm suggesting is that Joe is a very important guy, the fact that he's sitting on a chair. So therefore, um, the sanctuary was called a throne because it indicates the grandeur of the grandeur rather of him who manifested himself therein and let his glory, his light and glory descend upon it. So therefore, the Beis HaMikdash or the Mishkan is called God's throne. Why? Because the very fact that we constructed an edifice that is so grand in its majesty that it is it, it took a tremendous amount of resources and effort to build such an edifice for the sake of God, it therefore is indicative that the person for whom it was constructed is glorious and has grandeur. And um, God manifests himself in some way in this Mishkan. He fills his, a cloud of glory uh, in it. And that shows that God is somehow connected to it. And therefore, we say that the sanctuary is God's throne. In the sense, it's anything, any created substance, such as a temple, which indicates the glory or the majesty of God. That's our first definition of what a kisei is. <clears throat> Thus, scripture says, thou throne of glory on high from the beginning, and so on. And this is a Pasuk in Yermia. Kisei chavod maro merishon mikdashenu. Source number two. That your throne of glory was on high from the very beginning. Which means, which there's, there's a connotation of a couple of things. Number one, that God's temple, even before it was built, had some kind of existential um, substance to it, even in the heavens, even before it was built. But what is that place of majesty or grandeur that is designated for God, it is the place of our Beis HaMikdash, the place of our temple. 
On account of this sense, the heaven is called a throne. In this sense, says the Rambam, anything that we can point to in our world that is indicative of God's majesty is called a throne. And so therefore, heaven, or the sky, is called God's throne, as in indicating to those who have knowledge of them and reflect upon them the greatness of him who caused them to exist and to move, and who governs this lower world by means of the overflow of their bounty. Accordingly, accordingly it says, thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and so on. <coughs> Essentially, the reason why heaven, or the sky, is called God's throne is because when you study the sky and you see its grandeur, that it contains heavenly bodies of huge magnitude, that it, it is responsible for bringing sustenance to the world, that it contains stars and the moon and the sun and all of these heavenly bodies, you reflect upon the fact that this is majestic. This is a majestic representation of God's creation. And therefore, you point to the heavens and say that this is God's throne. Okay? So this is essentially the definition of the word kisei. And that's why the prophet Isaiah says, Ko amar Hashem, hashamayim kisei veharetz adom ragloi. So says the Lord, the heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. We're not going to explain footstool right now, but at least we know why we call the heavens God's throne. <clears throat> that is... He says, the heaven indicates my existence, grandeur and power, as a throne indicates the greatness of the individual who is considered worthy of it. I see an empty throne, and they tell me that that's the king's throne. Immediately, I am filled with a sense of respect um, and reverence for the king, because if they made that kind of throne for him, he must be someone special. And so... The same thing is that the heavens reflect something magic, majestic, and therefore the creator of those heavens must be some, someone really special. That is the doctrine that those who investigate the truth ought to believe. Okay, And essentially what he's saying is, is that if you're seeking truth and you want to understand more about the essence of God, then you have to appreciate that that's all the word throne means. It's not a description of something that God actually sits upon. Okay, whereas they ought not to believe that there is a body onto which the deity, may he be greatly exalted, raises himself. God does not go up to heaven where there's a big chair and sit down upon it. That's simplistic, it's provincial, it's primitive in its thinking, but it's important to know that that was, that was an acceptable way for people to originally look at scripture. For it will, be, it will be demonstrated to you that he, may he be exalted, is not a body. We haven't proven it yet, but in ensuing chapters, as we get into more advanced topics, we will prove to you philosophically that God contains no corporeality, no body. How, therefore, could there be for him a place and an abode situated above a body? The matter is just as we have pointed out, namely, every place, such as the sanctuary or the heaven, distinguished by God and singled out to receive his light and splendor is called a throne. And therefore, any place that is designated by God to demonstrate God's greatness, either because God associates himself with it or just by looking at it, you are filled with a sense of awe, that in itself is called God's throne. Okay? End of part one of the definition of the word kisei. 
Now we're going into part two of the definition of the word kisei, which is an entirely different definition, which gets even more esoteric and distances the idea even further from there being any kind of physical attribution to Hashem. This term is given a wider meaning in the Hebrew language when it says, for my hand upon the throne of the Lord. Now, what is he referring to? This is at the end of Parshas Bishalach in the book of Shemot, in the book of Exodus, source number four. Moshe Rabbeinu <clears throat> has just successfully defeated the, Amalekite, the Amalekites after they attacked the Jews upon their departure from Egypt. The Torah says, Vayiven Moshe Mizbeach, Vayikra Shemo Adoshem Nisi. Moshe builds an altar and he calls its name God is my, either my miracle or my banner. And then he says in Pasuk Tet Zayin, Vayomer, Kiyad al Kes Yah. The hand is upon the throne of God, Milchama Lashem Ba'amalek. There will be a war between God and Amalek, Midor Dor, from generation to generation. So the hand is on the throne. The hand is on the throne. What does that mean? The hand is on the throne. It's some kind of, it's creating some kind of imagery. When you place your hand on something, you are taking an oath. We place our hand on a Bible. When we go to court, when we take an oath, at least non-Jews do that. Okay, so placing your hand on something. When Eliezer wanted to take an oath, Avram said, place your hand on my loins. Place your hand on something that is precious and important and vitally dear to you that you would never lie when you associate with that item. So therefore, the hand is upon the throne of God is a form of taking an oath that there will be an eternal war with Amalek. So, what does this mean? There's nothing that you can point to over here in this verse that is indicative of the majesty of God. There is no temple, there is no heaven that Moshe is pointing to. So what does the word throne mean in this context? What is meant is the attribute of his greatness and sublimity. <clears throat> this is just God's greatness in general without it being linked to anything physical that I can point to. This ought not to be imagined as a thing outside his essence or as a created being from among the beings created by him so that he, maybe he exalted, should appear to exist both without a throne and with a throne. That would be infidelity beyond any doubt. What the Rambam is saying over here is, is that this is an aspect of God that is part of God. It is inseparable from God because it is one of God's aspects. And I believe what he mean when he says, means what he says, when it, that it's an aspect, it is, it is a way that God manifests himself to us in this world. God has many ways of manifesting his, himself. When we say that God manifests his throne, it means that God is manifesting his power, his grandeur, and his majesty, not associated necessarily with any physical thing that we experience, but rather it is sort of a descriptive of the way that Hashem interacts with our world in a majestic way where God is discernible through his actions, such as the destruction of the people of Amalek. When Amalek is destroyed, 
you see God's majesty being manifest in the world. So that is what I believe he means when he says that it is something that is a part of Hashem and inseparable from him. <clears throat> it's not something that you can say if something is an essential part of Hashem, it can't be separated from him. It can't be that Hashem exists with this thing at some times, at some points, and does not exist with this, this thing at other points. For it states explicitly, Thou, O Lord, sittest for all eternity. Thy throne is from generation to generation. This is a pasuk from Echa, from Lamentation, source number five. Ata Hashem le'olam teshev. You, God, will endure forever. Kis'acha lidor vador. Your throne is from generation to generation. What do we mean by that? Rambam says this means that it's an essential aspect of God that is not given to change. It is always part of Hashem. Is an, is an essential part of Hashem, okay? Whereby it indicates that the throne is a thing inseparable from him. Hence the term throne signifies in this passage and in all those similar to it, his sublimity and greatness that do not constitute a thing existing outside his essence as will be explained in some of the chapters in this treatise. So we will talk more about this, that God's manifestations are the way that he appears to man is always as sublime, as always being majestic. <clears throat> there are ways sometimes that we can detect it more, but he says that this throne is an essential aspect of God's majesty, and therefore it is inseparable from him. It's not like sometimes God is, has this throneness, and sometimes he doesn't. Since it is descriptive of some aspect of greatness of Hashem, it is always with him at all times that it, it is perceivable to God's creations. Okay, now that's what it means, and one of the ways of proving this is because, as Rashi points out, Moshe's hand is not on God's throne in the Pasuk of Kiyad al-Kesiyah. Whose hand is on the throne? It is God's hand that is upon the throne. Now what does God mean when he says, I place my hand upon the throne of God? What do you think that means? Rashi actually says that, Yado shel hakadosh baruch that God's hand is raised against or over his throne to have a war against and malice against Amalek eternally. Now, <clears throat> if God's throne was something that I could point to in the created world, then why would God, when I swear on something, I swear on something that I hold dear and important, even more important than myself, like a Bible. Why would God swear on anything outside of himself? He should swear on himself. He is the most important existent being. So therefore, you have to conclude, as the commentaries point out, that when God swears on his throne, he is swearing about an aspect of himself that is essential to himself. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for God to say, I swear by my heavens, I swear by my temple. Well, those things are temporal. That's not a significant or substantive oath because ultimately those things could fade away at some point. And therefore, the, the oath would not be everlasting. In order for the oath to be everlasting, God has to swear by his own name or by some aspect of himself. And that's how the Rambam knows that God's throne is an aspect of, the, of God himself that never changes, that is not given to vicissitude, and therefore it is our second definition of kisei. 
So we have two definitions now of kisei that neither of them are descriptive of an actual throne. The first definition, says the Rambam, is anything in the physical world which is indicative of God's majesty, such as the heavens and the God's temple. And the second definition is some aspect of God which, is the, which we discern when we think about <clears throat> Hashem, we think about his majesty, that is what we call the kisei. Something even more esoteric than just the physical uh, aspect of his majesty. Now, I want to, at this point, are there any questions or comments? Yes, yes Mary. It, in, in Sefer Breshit, when um, God nominates Yosef, he says, Rak So he's referring to himself as Hakise. So that's the. Well, that's Paro speaking, right? Right. That he's. That's, that, right. that's that aspect. Exactly, it's not, exactly. It's not, he's not saying the chair will be great. Like, I am Hakisa. Excellent, excellent reference. In other words, this throne, meaning my throne, will always be higher than your throne, not necessarily a spatially bigger throne. That, that in itself may be something, but it's not really significant. It's my position of power, of majesty, will always be greater than yours. Excellent. Here's a problem. I want to, rep, I want to share with you a problem in the Rambam itself, and this is just, a, I was excited to share this with you because we had spent a lot of time on the introduction where the Rambam had shown us at the end of his introduction that there are a number of times when you open up a book and you encounter contradictions within the book. And the Rambam had listed a list of seven different kinds of contradictions. Some of them show a failure in the authorship of the, of the work because the, work, the author contradicts himself. But sometimes contradictions are not necessarily indicative of any shortcoming of the author because the author is aware of the contradiction and he's trying to, in some way, um, resolve the contradiction, at least in his own mind. Take a look at a midrash from Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, chapter 3. We're just going to take a very small snippet from this chapter. It says, there were seven things that were created before the world was created. They are as follows. We have a similar Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, but let's see, see what Pirkei Dereb Liezer says. Torah is one, Gehenim is two, Gan Eden is three, and look at number four, Kisei HaKavod, the heavenly throne, is one of those things that was created before heaven and earth were created. Skip a, skip a line. The, the Medrash asks, Ha'aretz me'eza makom nivreit. From what was, looking at all of the elemental materials that God created before he created the world, what elemental materials did he use to create our earth? It says, Misheleg shetachat kiseha kavod. He took the snow that was underneath the heavenly throne, or the, or the glorious throne, the throne, throne of glory, he threw it upon the water, and the water congealed or solidified, and it became earth. <coughs> okay, whatever that means, it means. We'll put that aside for now. But it seems from the Medrash that the heavenly throne is something specific that is outside of God that was created, that is not just anything that is indicative of God's glory, but rather a specific creation. 
like Gan Eden and Gehenim and all of those other things. The Morin of Uchim, in the second section, chapter 26, what, do, do, how, how many sections does your book have? Does it just have one section or does it have both sections, or two sections or three sections? Two volumes. It's two volumes, so I'm not sure which, where section two lies, whether it's in section uh, volume one or volume two of the edition that you have. It's in the second. Okay, good, okay. Look at the text that I have tra translated for you from Morin Avuchin, section 2, chapter 26, and source number 8. This is the Friedlander translation, not the Pines translation, but you'll get the idea nonetheless. The creation of the throne of glory is mentioned by our sages, though in a strange way, for they say that it has been created before the creation of the universe. Scripture, however, does not mention the creation of the throne, except in the words of David. Thou hast established his throne in the heavens, which words admit of figurative interpretation. But the eternity of the throne is distinctly described in the book of Echa, like we quoted from before, Thou, O Lord, dwellest forever, thy throne forever and ever. Now, if Rebbe Eliezer, which is from Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, he's quoting the Medrash, believed that the throne was eternal so, the, so that the word throne expressed an attribute of God and not something created, how could anything be produced of a mere attribute. The Rambam here seems to be contradicting himself. In our chapter, section one, chapter nine, the Rambam says that the throne of God is an attribute of God. It's an attribute of God that is manifest in this world um, from Hashem, but it's not something separate from Hashem. But from Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, it appears that the throne is something separate from Hashem in a specific creation, not like the heaven or the temple. And so therefore, and he says it must be that way because God took some ingredient that is called snow in the Medrash from the throne and used it to create clods of earth. So it must be something separate from God himself. That is the argument of the Mora Nevuchim. And this immediately raises the antenna of the commentaries, which who say the Rambam has inherently contradicted himself. In our chapter, he says that the throne is an aspect of God himself, because after all, God would not swear on something other than himself. On the other hand, in the next section, he says that it's clear from Pirkei de Rebeliezer that it is something created and not an aspect of God's essence. So how do we reconcile this contradiction? Well, we don't necessarily have to know the exact answer, but let's take a look first. Let's, uh, first, before we take a look at any text, just think, just consider for a second. Is it possible that the Rambam believes that there may be a differentiation between when scripture uses the word kisei and when our sages use the word kisei? Is that a possibility? That is a possibility. And therefore, that might be one way of reconciling the inherent contradiction. That here he's dealing with biblical terminology, and he wants to point out to us that and whenever you find it in Tanakh, it is not descriptive of anything created specifically called a kisei. But sometimes Chazal have a different lexicon, and they will use the word kisei in different ways from what it is used in Tanakh. That would be one way of answering it. What's interesting is that I noticed the Ephodi and the Shem Tov, the two, some, two of the very big commentaries on the Moran Nevuchim, remind us 
of the seventh cause of when you find contradictions in the text. And the Rambam says that I will be doing this quite frequently. What was the seventh cause? It is sometimes necessary to introduce such metaphysical matter as may partly be disclosed, must, but must partly be concealed. While therefore, on one occasion, the object which the author has in view may demand that the metaphysical problem be treated as solved in one way, it may be convenient on another occasion to treat it as solved in the opposite way. The author must endeavor by concealing the fact as much as possible to prevent the uneducated reader from perceiving the contradiction. So I'm aware of this, is essentially what the Rambam wrote in the introduction, that there will be times when I will contradict myself. But I am doing it because I am trying to draw out to different lessons. It's one of the things that we pointed out is that Mor Nevuchim is meant to be studied sequentially because the Rambam starts off with basics and he goes into much more difficult and esoteric concepts the further along we get into the Sefer. And so therefore, for some reason, which we still have to figure out, at this early stage in the book, we're only in the first section, chapter 9, it may be necessary for us to at least make sure that we have properly distanced all corporeality from Hashem himself, and that's the primary thrust of this section of the book. By the time we get to section two, we'll be able to appreciate that there are esoteric creations on a metaphysical plane that God created before he made the world. And then we'll, since once we will have been properly girded in understanding the non-corporeal nature of God, we'll be ready for that more advanced topic at some later point in the Sefer. That's just something that I thought might be worthy of your attention. It's a great example of how the Rambam says, I'm going to contradict myself at different points in Moranavuchim. Okay, any questions, any comments? Yes. Just thinking about some of the earlier classes that we went through, <clears throat> how is it possible that the Rambam was influenced by Aristotle, which is a non plural person? You're asking a, gen a general question. question yes. The Rambam believes that in the world, there exist universal truths. He, at some point, goes so far as to say, we'll see this in the Mor Nebuchim itself, that Aristotle was correct in almost everything that he wrote, except for a few ideas about his description of God. Um, because the Rambam believes that truth is truth, and you have to accept the truth from wherever it comes. The Rambam believes, and he writes this explicitly elsewhere, that, and he writes this in the Mishnah Torah itself, which is, we talked about this in one of our early classes, that the Greek philosophers of old, and he's referring specifically to Aristotle, really took the information that was originated by our rabbis, repackaged it, reformatted it, and put it in their own terminology. My exercise of taking from the Greeks and using that to understand God and understanding creation is merely a restoration of the original knowledge that was possessed by our sages. And he, he goes back to that discussion of Ma'aseh Vereshit and Ma'aseh Merkava as what he says. That's what the rabbis were talking about when they talked about the act of creation and the act of the chariot. They knew philosophy. They just used different terminology for it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm reading a book by Mika Goodman, so I'm sure he would say that the contradiction is uh, is uh, the Rambam winking 
he, he uses that term a lot, is leaky. Like he, he, he will, he put things in the more in the booking to keep people at ease. Um, so, so there are references that just, that, that let people, for people who, who feel like he's going too far, there's references that people can hang on to and say, oh, okay, that, that's okay, when in fact it's not what he really means at all. Yeah, so that's a very Straussian attitude. We talked about Strauss, Leo Strauss, and it could, it's very possible that Micha Goodman is subscribing to Strauss who says that the Rambam writes so esoterically that he doesn't actually believe everything that he writes. Which, very controversial position to take. I'm not gonna take a, take a stand on that one way or the other, but I'll just let you think about it. Thank Have you. a great day.